This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our mystery in a moment. I want to thank all of our supporters. If you would like to continue to see us grow, please make sure you hit the subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and more. The best way to support us is to share our podcast with friends and family. Thank you for all of our supporters. And now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beaker Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we've got the story of a Revolutionary War soldier who became so eccentric and antisocial his neighbors were convinced he was a wizard, exerting his power over the natural world, often to their detriment. His Dutch neighbors in Ashtabula County blamed him for troubles both slight and significant. His name became a punchline for anything that went wrong. Not being the friendly sort, it's quite possible he did little to try and disabuse his neighbors of the notion. And, thanks to the stories that were told during his lifetime and recorded by family members and historians, his legend has survived for two centuries. This soldier wizard's name was John Lamont. He was 90 years old when he died in 1843. He was buried in Harper Cemetery in Ashtabula County's Harpersville Township, beneath a headstone that was purchased by the sons and daughters of the American Revolution. About a decade ago, Carl Feather of the Ashtabula Star Beacon did a wonderfully researched piece on Lamont, so full credit to him for the colorful details we know of his life and times. John's ancestors came from Ireland, and their path to America was an unusual one. John's uncle, Archibald, was kidnapped as a young man, taken to New York, and sold as a servant into a wealthy household on Long Island. It was colonial America, and not really uncommon for humans to be treated like chattel. 
So Archibald's mom brought her other son, Robert, to America so they could at least stay together. They settled in New York, and Robert married a Miss Brown. They had at least three sons. Their son, John, the subject of our episode, was born in 1753. Family lore says John was always a practical joker, sometimes rude, sometimes outright sadistic. Once his mother had filled an outdoor oven with bread and pies, only later to return and find her son had added a turtle, which had been baked alive. In another incident, John called to his brother William to come look at a huge trout he saw beneath the ice water of a lake. When William stooped to look for the fish, John shoved him in. So, clearly, John was demonstrating very early that he had a bit of a vicious streak in him. History described him as having, quote, a cold gray eye, solemn visage, and sinister aspect. When America's war for independence started, John and his two brothers joined the Patriots, And in May of 1775, John found himself in Montreal for the Battle of the Cedars. The Continental Army had gone there to confront British troops who had aligned with Indian allies and were planning an invasion from America's west. John was wounded during the battle and taken prisoner. His captors sent him and other POWs into Indian territory, They were all marked for death, but John held off the inevitable by asking permission to play a violin he spotted in their camp. His native prison guards were impressed, and they agreed to spare his life, but he would have to first run the gauntlet. The gauntlet was a custom that some tribes used to test the mettle of their captives. The prisoner was forced to run between two facing lines of men who brandished sticks and clubs and threw stones. Those who survived and conducted themselves bravely were rewarded. Cowards were often killed. John did well enough that he was adopted into the tribe and given a native wife. But John was just being agreeable and biding his time. As soon as he got the chance, he ran away, left behind his Indian wife, and rejoined the war. In 1780, after the war, John married Elizabeth Sullivan. They had five children, four girls, and a single son, Robert. By 1807, the family was settled in Ashtabula County, first in Geneva Township and then Harpersfield. When the War of 1812 began, John's only son, Robert, 23 years old now, married and the father of two, enlisted in the army to fight for his country, as his father had. As a young private, he volunteered to accompany a French guide and a doctor who were charged with going into enemy territory under a white flag to try and retrieve the bodies of some fallen soldiers. They spent a night in a cabin near present-day Toledo and hung their white flag outside. The flag 
was ignored when an enemy party of British and Native Americans came across the cabin. They fired on it, wounding the guide and the doctor and killing Robert. Back home in Ashtabula County, John was beside himself. Between the trials of war and his own captivity and the grief of losing his son, he was openly bitter and angry. He swore vengeance on the British and the Indians, and it appeared it was a threat he carried out. 19th century historians recorded the story of a legendary Seneca Indian named Stigwandish, or Standing Stone. The story says Standing Stone sided with the British for the War of 1812, but he had long been friends with the settlers of Ashtabula County, and he promised the local people if he learned an attack was coming, he would return to the county to warn them. Standing Stone kept his promise, but when he returned, he was killed by a resident who sought revenge for the death of his son. The resident who killed him hid his body in a hollow tree near Indian Creek in Geneva Township. This killer confessed to the deed as he lay on his own deathbed years later, and at his direction, neighbors went to the tree where Standing Stone had been buried, and they recovered some bones, moccasins, and a tomahawk. While history has never recorded the name of Standing Stone's killer, Modern-day researchers believe it was most likely John Lamont. But how did John gain the reputation of being a wizard? That's a tale that has been told by Charles Simons, a 19th-century Ashtabula County historian, and in stories that were preserved by a family biographer named Thomas Lamont. John's neighbors were afraid of him. He was brawny, more than six feet tall, and described as shrewd and sarcastic. And it became routine for everyone in his circle to attribute any adversity in their life to John Lamont and his demonic skills. The historian Simons wrote, If the leaven failed to rise and a heavy loaf resulted, the unlucky housewife charged John Lamont with the misfortune. Did the alkali and grease show less than their usual affinity and fail to combine as soap? It was bewitched, of course, and John Lamont bore the blame. The forest teemed with game, and the men were mighty hunters. The bear, the deer, and the wild turkey furnished their larders, but John Lamont could put a spell upon their rifles, and when the day's hunt proved unsuccessful or the rifle failed in its usual accuracy, old Lamont was to blame. The pioneers even concocted antidotes to counter Lamont's spells. For hunting, they scraped silver from jewelry in Spanish quarters and turned them into molten lead for bullets, they believed the ammunition would counteract Lamont's incantations. There was even a frontier exorcist who reportedly had a showdown with Lamont. 
we only know the man's name as Tiffany, and it was said he alone had the power to counter Lamont's spells. Neighbors would visit him to get counter spells and charms. Then Tiffany himself got hit. One year, he failed in making a batch of maple syrup, and he was certain his sabotaged effort was actually Lamont issuing him a direct challenge. So, Tiffany set a trap for the old wizard. Tiffany believed if a substance that was bewitched could be consumed by fire, and if the witch who had bewitched it could be kept from the substance until it had been completely consumed, then the witch would die. So, Tiffany put his bad maple syrup batch in a kettle and heaped firewood about it and burned it away. As the smoke rose, John Lamont emerged from the forest in apparent agony and begged Tiffany for a bit of his maple syrup to help with his colic. Tiffany knew it was clearly a ploy to get to his syrup and end the counterspell. So Tiffany charged Lamont with a hand spike and chased him from the property. (gasps) Well, even if that were all true, the counterspell didn't work. Lamont survived. And in the end, the whole affair had the neighbors chuckling at the absurdity of it all. Lamont's daughter, Betsy, it was said, inherited her father's mystical skills, or at the very least, his eccentricity. Historians say Betsy was Harpersfield Township's first landlady and that she rented out a room in her log cabin, which was built in 1830 on a ridge. Lodgers and neighbors reported seeing her dancing with a candlestick in her hand and a lighted candle poised on her head and that sometimes she would do this for hours, surrounded by other dancers. What I didn't find in my research were stories of ghosts or wizardly phenomena associated with John Lamont's gravesite. His military marble headstone is pretty modern and looks like all the other military white marble headstones. So, who knows? Maybe John Lamont found in death the peace that had eluded him his whole life. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.